I Could Murder a Podcast is proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network. For hundreds of extra minisodes and other content, along with our private Discord server and live Q&As, exclusive merch and much more, consider subscribing to icmap.co.uk. Warning. The following episode contains subject matter and scenes that some viewers may find upsetting, disturbing, or unnerving. Please note, viewer discretion is advised at all times. Sit back and enjoy. Oh, what a queer house it was. In all America, there was none other like it. Its chimneys stuck out where chimneys should never stick out. Its stairways ended nowhere in particular. Winding passages brought the uninitiated with a frightful jerk back to where they'd started from. There were rooms that had no doors. There were doors that had no rooms. A mysterious house, it was indeed. A crooked house. A reflex of the builder's own distorted mind. In that house occurred dark and eerie deeds. To I Could Murder a Podcast, episode number seven of series five. I'm Tom Norris and I'm joined by Mr. Motivation, Ben Carter. Motivation by name, motivation by nature. It's very, very good to be back with another episode. Last week was bleak. Yeah, all, I think all of them tend, most to, them, tend to be. Most of them tend to be bleak. It was a particularly bleak week last week. But it's good to be back. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, very well indeed. And producer Dan, how are you, sir? Hello, boys. Welcome back. And cheers to everybody watching and listening. That's a very good point, Dan. Yeah, lovely feedback so far, lovely comments, whole new bunch of subscribers and followers. And what else can you do these days? You can subscribe, you can follow, you can like, you can share. I feel like I'm missing something. But you're all doing it and we appreciate it very much. And to those of a keen eye who are watching this week's episode, might notice something slightly different about this. Mm. New headphones. Uh, basically left my headphones here last week the lovely dog that is Judgy the resident dog because of the studio Ben no offence to Vince and, and Vince and Gus not take it. they're still they're still very much alive yes yes my headphones left and bitten to bitten to buggery so uh, we thought we'd uh, treat ourselves to some new headphones but not only that we've actually changed the setup to our Patreon setup Ben do you want to explain to them why we chose to do that we started filming our Patreon episodes in this format and we found that the energy was slightly different we could see each other we could incorporate producer Dan much more evenly which we enjoy and it just felt like a nicer vibe I think the big thing for me was if one of us is reading or going off on one the other one can kind of look a little bit vacant, a bit awkward. So it's quite mm. nice to have the energy to cut between us. Keeps yeah. the energy up. Yeah, we just think we thought we'd freshen it up a bit. A bit, we, a bit wild card to do it mid-series, but we thought yeah. we are wild card. We are wild card. And you may, that's See, that's the wild card energy we were after. And also, you might notice we've changed the name of the, the channel over here on YouTube to ICMAP. Absolutely. We figured that murder was doing us no favours. Although it's doing us favours in terms of content, it's doing us no favours in terms of the algorithm. If you try and search I Can Murder a Podcast on YouTube, we don't pop up until after the word murder has been put in. So, mm. ICMAP it be. ICMAP it be indeed, Ben. And uh, before we get started, a little word from our sponsors. We want to say a big thank you to this week's sponsor, Dead Happy. That's right. Our good friends over at Dead Happy have sponsored another episode this week and we couldn't be happier to be partnering with them. We had Mick and Tell on the other week. Uh, yeah. Mick was lovely. Tell. 
All I found was a trail of biscuits on the way out. Uh, weird. Did you follow them? Uh, well, I picked them up. I thought it was going to lead to like a, a prize or something, but just found Tell's empty shoes. For all things life insurance, Tom, they are ahead of the curve. Ahead of the curve. They're flexible. They're just kind of doing a new spin on it. And what can we say about Dead Happy? They're changing the game in life insurance, aren't they, Ben? And it's very similar to sign up. Even dummies, like... Uh, dummies in general yeah it's easy for them to sign up it's, it's simple questions anyone can do it then that's the reason i liked it so much i put down your crayons first. and you thought i'm going to sign up for some life insurance yeah which is really appealing to me four quick questions straightforward you're all set up you can do it on your smartphone your computer your tablet it's it's, it's nice and, you're very nice modern and aren't you ben you're very... i'm a modern kind of guy so this case in itself is very much based around life insurance and a lot of elements of it but life insurance isn't a morbid thing a lot of people think you're spending money in life insurance and they're making money of your death but it's very much the opposite they're basically you know if anything they make more money for you living stay alive exactly guys. this is just looking after your loved ones it's just preparing things for if you if you were starting to pass they're going to be looked after in a proper way and to be honest there's never not a good time to have life insurance people tend to think of it as a thing to think about later on in life but yeah. you never know what's around the corner bit so right now the world is in a very unpredictable place you know things are changing every single day and one thing that that is reassuring to me is that i am insured and if anything should happen no one's going to inherit my bill my family will be in a good place my family will be looked after they'll probably be a bit upset they might be i don't you know they understand obviously people's finances can change and basically they can change with you and it's easy to cancel etc etc so dead happy it's the new way of doing life insurance exactly so why not die happy with your loved ones looked after by signing up to dead happy life insurance and using the code murder for your first three months free not only will you be helping yourself and your loved ones but you will be helping the i could murder a podcast team which we very much appreciate thank you dead happy uh once again be sure to check them out of course and ben this week's case Oof. Speaking of life insurance, frequently. Oh, if life insurance was a bit abused by this gentleman. Very much so. And don't be uh, an abuser of life insurance when you check out Dead Happy, please. This was one where I've always been aware of H.H. Holmes. Mm -hmm. By the way, it's the case of H.H. Holmes. Let's throw up some dramatic music. H.H. Holmes. As well with this app, we tend to do it at a different level. It's more relaxed, we're like, that'll do. So be prepared for that. Uh, yeah, H.H. Holmes, also known as the Beast of Chicago. The American Ripper. America's first serial killer. Dr. Death. The Arch Fiend. The Torture Doctor. Judson. The Devil in the White City. And the Beast of do, Chicago. Do That's the first one I did, <laughs> That's the first one I did on the list. And Alexander Bond. He went by Alexander Bond. Yeah, that's not the yeah, titles, is it? Well, trying to make people want to watch it. Um, Bond, I presume. <laughs> they might be interested. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but we're going with H.H. Holmes, The Devil Inside the Man. Yeah, very aware of H.H. H. Holmes. He's been on our list for a while. They all are. They, yeah, all the... Yeah, they I've all wanted are. to do this in series one. <laughs> was that supposed to be me? I thought, you. Was, I thought there was two of you in the room when I did it. Yeah, I was looking around. But this case itself, I've always been under the impression that nah, that never happened. Come on, stop joking about it. Let's talk about some serious crime. But a lot of it, although there's conjecture at various points, and we love a bit of conjecture. Oh, H.H. Holmes himself well, was yeah. very much a conjecturer. Yeah, he had conjectivitis. Um, That's serious, but... From, from the outside looking in, I've, until I sat down and did the research for this case. Was never. I, sorry? Yes, outside looking in. Just imagine you at a window. Yeah. Yeah, it, it does sound very elaborate, when you start, especially when you start mentioning the murder castle mm. and things like that. That's when you go, hmm. Yeah. 
But then turns out a lot of it is actually factually correct. No, yeah, I think um, it was very easy to view this as like a, a horror movie or something, an urban legend, a myth. But when you actually sit down and do the research and, and look further into this case, my goodness, I was surprised that so much of it is true. It's horrifying, of course. Obviously, there's also elements where you're only going off H.H. H. Holmes's word. He was said to have been a compulsive liar. When doing research, that made it quite difficult, uh, you know, who to believe. The castle itself and, and the second castle, I didn't even really know about the second one. So, yeah, excited to jump into this case. I always like going back to the oldies, doing like the late 1800s, early 1900s, Albert Fish, Nanny Doss, Nanny Doss Fish. Ed Gain. Ed Gain. I've recently found, because uh, I've been really shit with lookalikes recently, Ed Gain, put it in the coup the other day, neither of them reacted to it. Ed Gain looks exactly like someone from On 90 Day Fiancé, a guy called Gino, looks the spitting image of Ed Gain. And if you haven't already, guys, uh, all of the socials at Could Murder a Pod, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, just search I Could Murder a Podcast will pop up. We also have a Patreon page, loads of extra content over there um, if you just can't get enough. In terms of the socials as well, the episode case vote is coming up very, very soon. We like to do this every series. That will be held over on our Instagram page. Um, basically, you can recommend or suggest any case you want to see us cover. I'm convinced it's going to be two people. You always, but you said it every time and it's yeah. never been them. Fingers crossed because... They're big boys. Yeah, we've, done, we've done. I'm not intimidated by any case now because I feel like we've done ones that are massive. So I'm, I'm not intimidated. Yeah. Don't let Ben's worries affect your vote. Just the one thing that's most votes obviously will win. We will basically pop up a video or whatever. You guys just put the name of the case you want. We tally them all up on Facebook and on Insta, and then essentially it'll go into a versus mm. round, a final. I'm calling it now. I know the final two. But before we continue, we want to say a huge thank you to our sponsor, Wine52. How does some free wine sound to you? That sounds more than ideal. Yeah, now's the time to join your new favourite wine club, Wine52. It's a discovery club all about showcasing the very best wine from different regions, different places and different tastes and textures. And this month, the wine odyssey takes us to the stunning north of Portugal. One of the wines included is the Achor by the Quintas do Homem. Apologies about that pronunciation, but it's a, a delicious white wine made from a blend of local grape varieties. Also included is a lovely, vibrant, medium-bodied red, which I had with dinner recently. And it was amazing. So each month, Wine52 send you three bottles of wine, two delicious snacks, and also Glug Magazine, which goes into a bit more detail about the wine so you can become a real wine know-it-all. So not everyone likes red and white wine. When with Wine52, you can specify if you prefer whites, if you prefer reds, and they can cater it to your choice. And if you sign up through us using the link www.wine52.com forward slash murder, you can get a free case. There's no minimum commitment, and if it's not for you, you can pause or cancel at any time. So why not join me and producer Dan in this swanky wine club at www.wine52.com forward slash murder and get your free case today. So we move into the second half of Series 5. We really hope everyone enjoyed last week's episode, Chris Watts. I think, compared to every other case, he had a very normal childhood, and that's quite the opposite in uh, in this week's case. We've got another bunch of episodes coming up in this series, and as we go on, the cases just get bigger and bigger. They do. They do indeed. We do end the series with a lot of big hitters, and we're very much looking forward to showing you guys all of those cases as well. Big shout out to Gully Garms as well for dressing us this series. I've worn this once before, to be honest. It's um, nice. I like it. I've said for you, uh, Mr. Motivator, kind of vibes I was getting. Yeah. I'm on just... his day off. Maybe he's going to play golf. Why can't I just be regular, playing old fashioned Mr. Motivator? Because he usually wears an actual like, lycra. Oh, well, like, if you let me know, I could have. I would hate to see that. Um, and for yourself. I could, see, I could see you with the Menendez brothers. Alfred and the Chipmunks. 
that as well yeah but anyway ben enough chitty chat should we get into the case yeah absolutely and before we jump in obviously the information about this case with us going back so many years late 1800s early 1900s it has been very sensationalized and we're probably going to sensationalize it a little bit a little bit more i'm going to stick to the transit of the truth yeah i'm gonna at any point i can push it i will push it you like to bend the truth sometimes yeah sometimes i yeah, yeah. if it's going to get a laugh or a oh as long as you just just down a right life no reason there's no gain to it you just yeah. go i'm just gonna lie about this and see if i can get away with it which is interesting it's a dangerous path i'd like to, to know what origin dr dr das would have to say about that we'll be hearing from him later about hs he'll Holmes. never analyze me we're not let's not make that content because i'm scared he'll find some fucking skeletons in that closet boy <laughs> this comes new <laughs> fresh new now, for a lot of H.H. Holmes's childhood, there are many conflicting reports as to what actually happened. So you can either take the words of Holmes himself, who would very much paint a picture of kind of a, a childhood rife with abuse, or you can also take the kind of claims of multiple eyewitness accounts or locals that grew up with him who claimed actually he had an otherwise ordinary kind of plain sailing childhood. It's, it's tricky, quite interesting. It's tricky there because they wouldn't have seen what goes on behind closed doors and yeah. neighbors and stuff. Or in the woods. <laughs> yeah. Well, they could do. They might yeah. see that. They might, they, yeah. I mean, it's deep woods from what is it? Yeah, okay. Um, I'm but he, he he's, might not, he's bending the truth again here, ladies and gentlemen. He's already bending the um. But one thing we do know for a fact is that Herman Webster Mudgett, bop it, spin it, Mudgett, was born on May the 16th, 1861, in Gilmanton, New Hampshire. It's quite the name, isn't it? It is, yeah. I mean, that the journey to H.H. H. Holmes that we're going to go on. Herman Webster Mudgett, H.W.M. Mudgett sounds quite like a, a bully. Quite sweet. Mudgett? I think it's more like kind of... Sweet. Yeah, like the Roald Dahl. The Roald Dahl. The Roald Dahl. Um, Roald Dahl. Next door to the Buckets. The Mudgets. Granddad in one bed and, well, in the context of this case, let's not, but you know what I mean. I want to know more about the granddad in the one bed. How many beds should he be in? So what do we know about Gilmanton? Not uh, a lot. Can you tell us some more? Of course I can. That's Thank what you, I'm here sir. for. Small town knowledge is kind of my thing now. Gilmanton. What do we know about Gilmanton? It was founded in December 1761, I think. Wow. Yeah, that's yeah. just a hundred bucks. Spot on. Well, the small farming township of Gilmanton. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It yeah, was, I don't know why you're repeating it. I don't know. It's weird that I am, but I'm going to. It was founded <laughs> in it. December of 1761 by a man of the name Benjamin Mudgett. Mm. There's that name again who was one of the first white settlers to arrive there. It's hard to find online, and even harder for me to count the years back, if he was a direct relation of Herman Webster Mudgett. But if he was, I believe he would have been his great-great-great-grandfather. So he came from uh, the family that potentially founded Gilmanton. Not a lot of people can say that. Yeah, yeah. Very little, if anything, Ben. Yeah. To be fair. And thanks to anyone who did tell Ben they enjoyed the small town knowledge. Herman was the son of Levi Horton Mudgett and Theodate Page Price, who were both descendants of some of the very first British immigrants to arrive in America. Theodate is an interesting name. Mm. And Levi Horton is a good name. Herman was the middle Mudgett, the Mudgett in the middle. Um, he had an older brother called Arthur and an older sister called Ellen, as well as two younger siblings, a younger brother called Henry and a younger sister called Mary. So Arthur, Ellen, Henry, Mary and Herman Mudgett. The gag bended at the beginning, which we all thought was off the cuff and quite good. He's written the same gag in here. Uh, very much sounds like the Roald Dahl tale. The magic next door to the buckets. 
Grandad has one bed. I riffed the Grandad has one bed part. It's weird how that's a bit of fucked up. <laughs> the Mudgets were a privileged upper class family owning lots of farmland and nice houses in the Gilmanton area. They were said to have been very wealthy, but also very devout Methodists, and they took religion and good old fashioned family values extremely seriously. So they wanted to raise young Herman in a strictly Methodist environment. So the Mudgett's ancestors were all farmers. Although his father, Levi, was very much someone who that wanted to earn his money in multiple, multiple ways, he worked as a farmer, a house painter, and trader. So didn't Ed Gain do a bit of house painting? He, he could do a bit, of a, yeah, a bit of a handyman. Yeah. Put a fence up for you, cut some grass. Sew your skin up, make a little outfit. And despite what would be a fairly fractured relationship, a young Herman very much looked up to his father. So yeah, be an odd jobsman, someone get his money where he can. It's definitely something that he kind of aspired to be like. Definitely. His mother, Theodate, which again, yeah, is an interesting name. She drove religion into the Mudgett children from a very early age. So she often forced them to spend any of their spare time focusing on religious studies. She was said to at the same time have been a very cold and distant woman, rarely showing any signs of kindness or affection. She was very emotionally absent from the rest of the Mudgett children. Just imagine her outside when it's when it's winter, just at the back of the garden. You know? Why are you being so cold and distant, Mum? <laughs> Cut that out once. I thought it was funny when I was doing it. Did it get you done? I got Same. a I got a wry smile. But before we continue, we'd like to say thanks to this episode's sponsor, BetterHelp Online Therapy. Now, there's no denying we live in a funny old world at the moment, and a lot of our mental health is very much under strain right now. Whether it's work and career struggles, financial struggles, or even social struggles, I think it goes without saying that a lot of us don't give our mental health the time of day. Now, over the course of the podcast, we've had a lot of people reach out and message us and let us know that our podcast brings them some sort of peace to their busy and stressful lives and i think it's a really great sign that people are starting to talk about this more openly however if you think you need to speak to a therapist then why not try better help better help is an online therapy that offers video phone and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to it's way more affordable than in-person therapy and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours it's such a simple process, the sign-up is easy, fill out a few forms so they can get to know you and you're simply left to be matched with a therapist promptly. Over 2 million people have already used BetterHelp Online Therapy and because this podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, I Could Murder a Podcast listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp. Just head over to betterhelp.com forward slash ICMAP. That's B-E-T-T-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash ICMAP. Now back to the case. So Herman's father, Levi, he ruled the House of an Iron Fist, which is very common in these cases. Mm -hmm. And he also had several battles with alcoholism. He was incredibly strict and at times was also physically and allegedly sexually abusive to all the Mudgett children. But he was apparently particularly harsh on young Herman and Henry, who was the youngest. It is said that Levi would often become violent after a few drinks. And whenever he felt that the Mudgett children were acting out, he would either isolate them and shut them away from the rest of the family as punishment, which would result in them being not fed and kind of being kept away. Or he would smother them with a rag soaked in kerosene and chloroform, which is unthinkable. But like we said, this is kind of falling into the conjecture. Yeah. Now, neighbours said he was a lovely dad. No he just walked around with his rag. We didn't know what was it. It was covered in. We just thought he was going to wash a boot. So potentially, there is a lot of abuse in the Mudgett household, although again, this is all coming from uh, Herman, later H.H. H. Holmes's perspective. He was a very smart child, and from an early age, he would excel at school. He was considered highly intelligent and very much enjoyed reading, his favourite books being the works of Edgar Allan Poe. He would also learn as well from identified behaviour of his father that as soon as his father picked up a bottle or started drinking, he would retreat into the nearby woods, 
just outside of the family farm. Which again, woods. We've discussed woods a lot lately. We're not going to go down this. this yeah. Because then you'll end up talking about a childhood game. You'll misinterpret what it means. It'll end up be someone trying to dissolve something with sticks. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I've, yeah. we don't want to go down that stream. <sighs> when you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. But yeah, as soon as he spotted his father drinking, he would retreat into the woods, take a few books with him, and he did this to avoid any potential beatings or any kind of confrontation. I'm so, sure as well it's going to be escapism as well, with reading the books and being somewhere else and losing himself within that. So as we said, it's, it's hard to tell with this in some, in some aspects as we will go on, because like Ben mentioned early on, Herman, who would grow up to be H.H. Holmes, he likes to bend the truth an awful lot. So um, him recounting his, his childhood, it's one of those, well, why would he lie? But, mm. And maybe as well with him being so fond of literature and fiction that he kind of liked to bend the truth in, in that regard as well. Well, as he would retreat into the woods, he would also explore the woods. And subsequently, some people have said, although I say some people have said, is probably H.H. H. Holmes. I mean, who would make this up? This resulted in Herman finding and torturing wild animals. He's written an autobiography, didn't he? I'm not sure if that information came directly from that. But yeah, who else is imp- implying that unless it was a passing comment and they've kind of... I mean, it would make a lot of sense in terms of what he'd go on to do. That's always a pattern, isn't it, within this, in terms mm-hmm. of torturing animals. So, Yeah, and we'll talk about that more shortly because it doesn't end there, unfortunately. It'd be a very short episode if it did. Yeah. So when Herman was 11 years old, one of his only friends was a local boy named Tom, and they would go on to explore an abandoned house. Tom climbed onto a ledge of the house and would fall to his death in front of Herman. With a lot of people believing that Herman was in fact responsible for the pushing of Tom off the ledge. Which again, it's like, if mm. it's his only friend... Tom not here to tell the tale. No. So from a very early age, one of his only friends has fallen to his death. Again, there's a lot of conjecture as to whether this was accidental or whether Herman was in fact responsible for it. But then he's been exposed to death from a very early age. He was also a socially awkward child. He didn't like to make eye contact with others and would keep very much to himself. The only friend apparently that he did have fell off a ledge. Allegedly. Very good. And yeah, he would very much prefer when there was any kind of conflict in his life, any kind of trauma, he would just retreat into the woods, take his books with him. And unfortunately, as a result of this, he was bullied relentlessly. So when Herman was 13, two older boys dragged him into the local doctor's office. The pair that grabbed him were bullies and they were aware that Herman was particularly easily frightened. So what the boys did was shut Herman in a cupboard with a human skeleton and they placed him essentially kind of face to face with it. Now, instead of scaring Herman, he actually became 
kind of fascinated by the skeleton and by the experience itself. So yeah, apparently the skeleton had his arms kind of wide open, and he was kind of looking at it. I think, I think initially he was a bit scared and creeped out, but then he kind of, with time in there, got kind of got more intrigued by the uh, the human form and the skeleton. And it's been said that this perhaps was a very big moment in his life in terms of making him intrigued by the insides of humans. Definitely, and he would then choose to pursue those kind of feelings of intrigue by wanting to then go on. It kind of fueled his desire to start studying medicine. And I mean, the skeleton with arms wide open, Creed, I just left it way too long. So the childhoods we've explored so far, Tom, with the exception of Chris Watts, have all been fairly bleak, fairly brutal. H.H. Holmes so far, or Herman, experienced animal cruelty, exposure to death from an early age, physical abuse, emotional abuse, alleged sexual abuse, and relentlessly bullied. So bad childhood bingo, that is pretty much, with the exception of no bedwetting, a full house. We don't know for sure he didn't bedwet. Maybe true. Maybe he blamed it on a family member, a family's yeah. member. The granddad in the bed. And the little one said, you pissed yourself. <laughs> There's a lot of things we say very often, Ben, on this podcast. Mm. Let us know in the comments below, maybe an I Could Murder a podcast-based bingo. Love to play. Yeah, it'd usually be red flags. We wish, we wanted to do this episode for a long time. Avatar. No, Foreshadowing. We got rid of, we cut oh. those out when you say those things. Sorry, Ben Carter bingo. Don't comment about that, guys, please. Ben Carter bingo would be quite easy. Yeah, let us know about bingo. I think we say certain things we say quite regularly. We've been told, well, red flags, conjecture. Let us know that in the comments below some words we say on the regulars. One thing I've noticed I say quite a lot is at the time, when I'm, particularly when I'm in the timeline. I say at the time a lot. Sorry yeah, if I've do. killed us for you. If that ruined, if you've gone off us now, because I do say that a lot, I say it a lot. Yeah, at do. the time, I, yeah, I do. It feels familiar. Huh. Yeah. Really familiar. And if, if that's put people off, I'm sorry. And so as Herman got older, he started trapping wild animals in the woods nearby his family home and he would dissect these animals. So, I mean, you could argue it still falls under the category of torturing them because obviously he'd be, he'd be killing them. But there's more to do amateur surgeries on them. This included snakes, rabbits, and even dogs and cats. I think it still very much falls under the torture side of things. But his fascination grew a lot more with the kind of anatomy of animals and, and humans. Yeah, and he, he wouldn't kill them first and then perform these amateur surgeries as well. Like he'd, he'd do this while they were still alive, which is particularly disturbing. At the age of 16, Herman graduated from Phillips Exeter Academy and took up various teaching jobs in Gilmanton. He was said to have again been very socially awkward through his teens. And in fact, in some occasions, very socially inappropriate. So as he was in various teaching roles, often maintaining eye contact for extensive and unnerving periods of time, and also placing his hands on his students for extensive periods of time. Which gives me a little bit of a chikatilo. Do you remember he had like a small teaching role? He was bullied by his students, wasn't he? It, it didn't quite go his way, which we're happy about. But wasn't he inappropriate with a lot of his students? When he punished them, yeah. he would do things, but... He essentially would be teaching them and then be bullied by them massively. Yeah, just get a very Chikatilo vibe from him in his teaching days. So despite his social awkwardness, uh, many women were apparently attracted to him. Again, this could be him inflating his own ego, describing him as charming, clever and smooth. And he's also very fond of his female students and neighbours. Uh, this would very much run through Herman's life later on. He seemed to... Bit of a ladies' man. Mm. He would later be described by detectives as a social chameleon, which perhaps explains why there are so many different opinions and perspectives for who he actually was and how he behaved. Great word for him going forward in terms of he would very much change who he was an awful lot. So on July 
July 4th, 1878, when Herman was just 17 years old, he married Clara Lovering, who was the daughter of a local and very wealthy farmer. And a year and a half after that, the pair had a son that they named Robert Lovering Mudgett. And it is alleged that shortly after the birth of their son, Herman very much lost interest in his wife. He fell head over heels with her at the time, but very much lost interest. Started to spend a lot of time away from the family home, disappeared days on end, and a lot of rumours were going about. And again, this might be his own words, but apparently he was only interested and attracted to her due to the fact that she came from a very wealthy family. As we mentioned earlier on, though, with his dad, who was very kind of making money in different kinds of ways. I think wealth was something that very much drove Herman. And I think that does make a lot of sense. And he probably thought as well, having a kid with her very much ties and anchors him into that family as well. So Herman would go on to enroll in the University of Vermont in Burlington at age 18, but did not enjoy the learning content of the school and left after just one year. So the following year in 1882, he enrolled in the University of Michigan's Department of Medicine and graduated in June 1884 after passing his exams. However, this was not without a couple of controversies. So whilst living and studying in... In Michigan, Herman and Professor William James Herdman, who was at the time the chief anatomy instructor of the university, the two basically got into a bit of an agreement wherein they agreed to engage in the facilitating of grave robbing. Mm. So what they would do is they would dig up bodies and supply them as medical cadavers, but Herman would also go one further than this and dig up cadavers of his own to then go on to sell separately outside of this agreement to schools, medical professionals and scientists. He would also use them to go on to conduct various insurance frauds. So yeah, it's quite an escalation. There's a bit of conjecture around Herman uh, allegedly engaging in life insurance fraud, with some saying that he, he wasn't able to provide bodies that perfectly match the description of their victims. Other things that we've looked at state that he would actually burn and manipulate the bodies of the cadavers that he dug up to then say, okay, it was a you know an explosion or a, a, an accident. And it's yeah, it, it depends which which side you believe. But apparently, yeah, he would make a lot of money supplying cadavers to various third parties. I always thought that was a dead market. Well, whilst Herman was at the college, he had a roommate named Fred Ingalls. And Fred was very much the gentleman, and he he, very, he clashed a lot with Herman. Uh, he didn't think Herman was a very nice man, or he didn't believe with his kind of beliefs. He knew that Herman was married, but Herman was very, spending a lot of time with the landlord's daughter, and he thought that was very improper. Herman basically, he, he said to Fred, he broke up a, a very strange deal with Fred. He basically said, if you don't tell anyone I'm married, I won't go out womanising, which seems to be like a very odd thing. It's like, if you leave your Maltesers out, I won't eat them. Yeah. If, you, if you hide them away... I'm not going to... He gets home, he goes, have, uh, have you told anyone about my wife? Uh, no. All right, I'll see you in about four hours. <laughs> I'm off to the clubs. So it's a very odd odd thing to agree there. So Herman and Fred would actually have physical altercations a couple of times. One time, which I think is hilarious and it's very much of the time, was because Fred was using um, Herman's moustache wax without asking permission, mm. which is a big, you know, big no-no. Don't do that. I mean, yeah. I've never tried it. I haven't got... Mustache of, wax. Mustache wax. That kind of got a pomade vibe, like wet and greasy. I imagine mustache wax would be to yeah, it's, it's the, part it. It's people that kind of do the old little... Oh, the twiddle. The twiddle. Oh. Um, but then another brawl would ensue when Fred was disagreeing basically with how close um, Herman was being the landlady of his daughter, mm. and this would actually result in a fight between the two, and Fred would end up with a black eye. Yeah, well, he's the perfect gentleman, Fred, so probably wasn't... A cultured fighter. 
So housemates described Herman as also uh, not only being physically aggressive to Fred, but also treating his wife Clara violently during the very little time that they had to spend together. And in 1884, just before his graduation, she decided to move back to New Hampshire and later wrote that she barely heard from her husband Herman after this moment. Throughout his time at university, he would very much study and again keep to himself with very little friends and acquaintances. He would go out and kind of fraternise, womanise all the I's and just two H's, three H's, fuck. So Herman didn't seem to enjoy very much male company. He would keep to himself, he would study, very little friends, very little acquaintances, but he would still desire the companionship of women. And he would make multiple acquaintances frequently out on the town, making many new relationships during his time at university. And apparently one of his first lines to the women that he would meet, and if he would take them out, would be, can I interest you in some life insurance? And he's not just flogging dead happy. (laughs) It's an interesting opening line, but I guess as long as you have to mix it up, don't you? On, yeah. on taking notes, people want to be hear something different. What's your most interesting starting line? Starting line. Because hmm. I've li- recently learned of the phrase, have you ever counted shoulders? And I'd never heard of that. And it would be so much more effective if we were still sat together. But fortunately for you, oh, we're not. Oh, one, two, and you put the arm around them. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's hey, hey, baby. <laughs> have, you, uh, have you ever counted shoulders? And they, they usually say, fuck that. off. <laughs> Creep. They call me, they call me baby. So yeah, you basically go, you know, if you ever counted shoulders, one, two, three, four. Why don't you just do one, two and get the arm around them? Well, because it's, it's not two shoulders, it's four. Their shoulders, one, yeah, two. You're, you're, you're being Why are you going one, two, three, four? Uh, you're being too forward there, mate. I'm not doing it. The other one is uh, you check the label. A boyfriend mm. material. Just as I thought. Made in heaven. That's not what that is. Oh. Is that not what it is? It's boyfriend material, isn't it? Oh. Yeah, do you have life insurance? Is, is, is an odd... I don't think that would be received in the best kind of way. It's a very mm. odd question to ask. Yeah. So Herman wooed one particular lady, a widow from Brooklyn, to the point where she proposed marriage to him, which is very rare nowadays, but usually on New Year's Eve, isn't it? Is it on a leap year? It's leap quite year. Well, when's good, the next? Good friend, Josh and Rachel. Uh, Rachel proposed to Josh on New Year's. He agreed and, and gave his promise, however, later backed out. At the time, this was regarded as a breach of promise, which was a very serious crime in the 1800s. If proven, this would have caused Herman to spend time in prison and made miss out on his graduation. I think that's great. Breach of a promise. Not the seducing a poor old widow from Brooklyn. Yeah, but people can change their mind. Yeah, people can change their mind. But do, do, if you're going to change your mind, don't make a promise. Do you know what I mean? You, you think if you're engaged, you just have to shit put up with it. Oh, no, no, no. But if he promises, I'll be there, I'm going to do this, then, you know... That's essentially what engagement is, though, isn't it? Yeah, but I mean, you could, you know, I'm sure divorce existed then. Breach of a promise, though. Like, if I, if I, so you think it's better for that if he knows it's not going to work, wait to be in in a marriage with him, then divorce. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's better. Be follow the process. Don't breach. Rather than just get out down and dusted that before. Breach a marriage. Don't breach a promise. Do you know? Yeah. The case went public and his classmates and teachers were stunned by the events. His partner in crime and anatomy professor Herbman defended him and even made a statement of his character to Herman's defence and he was pardoned as a result. The claim of defence was it was a herd mentality. But yeah, very interesting. So this was the professor that was also stealing cadavers and selling cadavers with him. Basically came forward to say, look, there's no chance that Herman would have made a promise he couldn't keep. Nobody's perfect. Oh. No bodies. Perfect in these graves because I've stopped them. 
So as a result of uh, Professor Herdman's defence, jumping to the defence of um, Herman, um, he was pardoned. And weirdly, just after he was pardoned, he was allowed to graduate. Shortly after this, Herman then told the professor that in fact he was lying all along and had broken the promise. He also then made an extra admission to say that he had also robbed the professor's house twice whilst studying his teachings. This is this is an ongoing theme that happens with Herman. He he likes to likes a scam, but he likes a scam when the person realizes he's been scammed by him. That's mm-hmm. the big thing. Otherwise, it's not worth scamming. If he just does a scam and gets away with it, that's not enough. No, he needs to know and rub it in the face. That's his, that's his big petty. thing. He's petty. He is petty. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, as Tom said, he's very much a fan of, he'll pull a con, but the con isn't complete until he's rubbed it in the person he's con's face. It's like punked, but Ashton Kutcher needs to come out. Yeah. If Ashton Kutcher doesn't come out, what's the point of doing punked? Well, yeah, it's just pun. Or, or Rhea Ferdinand with murked. So Professor Herdman would later write, this was the first positive evidence I had received. And bear in mind, Professor, I will finish the quote, but Professor Herdman... Had been nicking bodies with him. Exactly. So hardly the best judge of character. This was the first positive evidence I had received up until that time that the fellow was a scoundrel. The lady is a tramp. Like we said before, he would dissect animals and all this Mm. stuff. He liked to do a lot of homework. Yeah. And one of those things he would do would operate a small chemistry lab out of the, his boarding house. And at one stage, um, a cleaner of this of, of, of his boarding home actually found a dead baby under his bed. Mm. It's a horrible sentence in itself. But um, Herman assured her, you know, we're doing this dissection. And this is just a, a, me for me being able to practice at home, uh, dissecting a body. Yeah. Um, and his roommate, Ingalls, the perfect gentleman, was like, That's not very gentlemanly, having a dead baby under your bed. <laughs> Oh, put it in the bin. (laughs) So as Tom said, Herman always wanting to make a quick buck, always looking for the next con. I mean, he's got a chemistry lab at the end of his bed. And and, we know what's under the bed. But he was constantly motivated to create his own medicine patent. He tried to, at one point, when there was a small outbreak of smallpox... A tiny outbreak of smallpox. Thank you. He tried to con locals with a supposed vaccine for the smallpox that he pretended also was government mandated. So he would go around selling these very small bottles of smallpox vaccine for 25 cents per bottle, which was roughly $6.50. And he made a small fortune in doing this, which allowed him... a small fortune from small bottles for smallpox vaccine. Yeah. And apparently he would call it... um, It wasn't a Moderna vaccine, it was a little Erna vaccine. Fucking hell. (laughs) Fucking... So after graduating, Herman moved to New York and a rumour spread that Herman had been spotted with a little boy who later disappeared. Herman claimed the boy went back to his home in Massachusetts and no investigation took place. Herman quickly left town. He's moving all the time, this he guy. He is. And, yeah. and it, remember as well, he's got, he's got a daughter and a wife back home. So with that, when he did leave, it was some attempt or loose attempt of, of them breaking up. It wasn't a case of he left them and was going to return to them, but it was never officially officiated in the sense of the divorce. He just ran away going, I never promised that. Exactly. Mm, that's what we think happened. So Herman would later travel to Philadelphia where he took a position at a drugstore. But whilst working there, a boy would die after taking medicine that was purchased at the store. So Holmes denied any involvement in the death and then would immediately go on to leave the city. He would then go on to take another role. This is shortly before he uh, moved to Chicago. So he's moving about all the time now. But he's now working in a doctor's office and he was approached by another doctor who went by the name of Dr. Steely. Uh, He asked Herman to conduct an autopsy on one of his patients. It was a patient who was actually dying 
dying as a result of a wound he experienced during the Civil War. As he's a war veteran, the autopsy was needed in order for the veteran to provide his wife with his military pension. Now, after the gentleman passed away, Herman removed the bullet that fatally killed him during the war, and he also removed all of his ribs. He then immediately refused to sign the autopsy, confirming the cause of death, which would release the pension, unless Dr. Steely paid him an unusually high amount of money. So he's kind of holding him to ransom over body parts and a bullet. Well, bleak. Dr. Steely then threatened to go to the police about the matter, and again, Herman fleed the town, this time heading for the streets of Chicago. And it's here that he's no longer known as Herman, but decides to change his name to H.H. H. Holmes. And it's here that we go to the timeline. 1886. Herman Webster Mudgett moved to Chicago and took a job as a pharmacist, operating under the new name Dr. Henry Howard Holmes. Triple H. H.H. H. Holmes. Yes, it's, it's the birth of the new name. As names go, Henry Howard Holmes. H.H. H. Holmes. I, that could be like a... H.H. You know, H. H. Holmes sounds good. Yeah. But the Henry Howard. What would you have gone for instead? If it has to be H.H. H. still. Yeah. I'll probably say Hugo... Yeah. Um, Hernandez Holmes. Yeah, that is better than his. Yeah, fair play. Yeah, H.H. H. Holmes. I, I like that. I could mm. see H.H. H. Holmes with a big band. So can like... we call H.H. H. Holmes and see if we can change it? Just Dan, can you get in touch with him, please? Sorry, I was just looking. How would you naturally pronounce H? Is it H or H? I'm a H guy. I'm, I'm a H.H. H. I think H is incorrect. You're an H guy. No, I'm not either. To be honest but it's with you. a house. It's not a Yeah, H. but the letter I'm talking about. Not, not, not the... Good question. How do you pronounce... Not the little girl. ...the letter H? I mean, it's, it's a valid point. H.H. Holmes? H.H. Holmes? The drugstore... Just, just the letter. H. H.H. You can still Holmes. say Holmes with was a... It, <laughs> was it H from Steps or H from Steps? H. H. Let us know in the comments. The drugstore he worked at belonged to the Holton family, and it was situated at the northwest corner of South Wallace Avenue and West 63rd Street, which was in Englewood. There are varying reports of the disappearance of Elizabeth Holton and her husband, with some claiming that the husband had died and the wife then sold the store to H.H. H. Holmes before she also disappeared, with others claiming that Holmes portrayed himself as a hard-working employee who bought the store legitimately from the Holtons, who continued living long into the 20th century. On that, there is evidence of that family moving on and being and moving somewhere else, so it's unlikely that Holmes did actually um, kill them. They didn't just go, oh, uh, Henry Howard, do you want to buy this property? The reason why they got to the stage where they had to sell it was because things were starting to go missing in there, yeah. and they were starting to lose profits. And who was the person stealing all the goods? It was only Henry Howard Holmes. Yeah. Um, Holmes under... And he's filling up his homes with, with their goods. Yeah. So, yeah, he basically thought, I can put these guys out of business from, from thieving. Yeah. Took all their stock. Took all their stock. And then... He, he, Hit it around the block. He, he edged them into a corner. Like, Oof, I guess you're going to have to sell the place. I'm interested. So, yeah, he, he basically, his, his plan worked. Holmes uh, also purchased an empty space across from the drugstore, began converting into a three-story building, taking up the entire block of 63rd and Wallace Streets. He's got money to throw about, hasn't he? Yeah. Those cadavers went for some serious dollar. Expensive cadavers, smallpox uh, vaccine. He's also swindled a lot of pharmacy stock. And, you know, he came from a wealthy family as well. So who knows where all of that mass wealth suddenly appeared from. But also there's there's more to it as we're going to go on to speak about this three-storey building. So basically he would contract a bunch of different workers to start building this property. 
and at various different points once the first floor went up second floor went up he would have arguments staged kind of arguments with with the workers to say that he didn't agree with what they were doing or that's not exactly how i wanted it and he would strike them off and sack them therefore trying to avoid or declining to pay them altogether so he declined to pay the architects declined to pay the steel company declined to pay the builders i've got a friend he purchases things at amazon claims they're defected i guess refund and keeps the items he does that a lot oh yeah ratty behavior unlikely you're watching it but if you are that's ratty what's the biggest purchase he's made it's usually washing up powder and things like that. So during this time, Holmes was living the life of a single man. Despite still being married to Clara Lovering, he courted and married Myra Belknap. It was after the marriage that Holmes decided to file for divorce from his first wife. He prepared the papers and sent them to Clara, but she never received them. And as a result, the divorce was never finalised. He was actually trying to imply that she was, having, she was having an affair and she was unfaithful. That can be, if there's enough evidence surrounding it, you can then get divorced very simply. But... Mm -hmm. There was no witnesses because she wasn't being unfaithful. If anything, you know, it's very much the other way. Definitely. Well, surely he could just say, I'm being unfaithful. Yeah. Maybe you wouldn't get as much in the divorce. He seems to always want to paint himself in the winning light, in a positive light. And maybe that's why he was playing the victim card. Oh, I've been, I've been cheated on. And, oh. I've been, oh, I've been in the love ring and I've been knocked out. The bell's bit ringing with belt nap. Fuck. <laughs> 1889. So during the construction of the three-storey building, Holmes hired and fired several construction crews rumoured to be so that no one would have a clear idea of what he was doing. Other explanations would be that he fell behind on payments to various construction companies and lenders. I'm inclined to believe it's a bit of both. With Holmes regularly finding new loves he would often put properties in their name so if anything did go wrong it wouldn't be a lawsuit at his door you know he was doing it as you know we're in love i'll, I'll do this for you but yeah. he very much was covering his back he was counting a lot of shoulders at that mm. point he had a lot of homes to deal with so the 4th of july 1889 Holmes had a daughter with murta lucy theodate holmes although Holmes lived with murta and lucy in wilmot illinois he spent most of his time in chicago tending to the business again but then when Holmes is away Home says play. And the builders he will not pay. A funhouse, patch up. Yeah. And again, soon after a child enters the world, he disappears. He seems to... Responsibility of parenthood, Tom. I'm calling him out on it. You should. There's mm. many other things to call him out for. Yeah, I mean... that I, is one. That is one of them, yeah. I'm starting a list. 1891. Construction is now completed on Holmes's three-storey building, and he then begins to place ads in newspapers for young women looking for work, offering the house as a place of lodging. Very dubious circumstances here. So this big free, it's a massive building as well. It's not just, I mean, it's, it's like a hotel in, in some aspects, like a mall in other well, aspects. It's, a, it's, it's three a, story, isn't it? It's, it's, it's not just one movie, it's a whole franchise, Ben. Yeah, yeah. Rush hour free. Yeah. One thing that he was really particular about is when placing adverts, he was very clear that he wanted female staff and would only have female staff that could utilise the place as a place of lodging. He also placed, at the same time, ads presenting himself as a wealthy man looking for a wife. Mm. So I don't know what his two other wives were thinking about that, if they ever saw the ad. I'm I don't sure know. they didn't. You know, newspapers get recycled nowadays. Back then, I don't know. It's fish and chip paper in Illinois. So, well, lovely fish and chips. What's that? Mr. Holmes. Holmes in a way. Oh, he's playing away. Um, ooh. Um, <laughs> 17th of April, 1891, a creditor of Holmes named John De Broyle died of apoplexy in the drugstore. Questions have since been raised as to the real cause of the death. Mm -hmm. Now, apoplexy, Ben, you know a lot about this. No, loads about it. If you just give me literally five seconds. Um, Why just, are you, what are you typing? Not typing anything. I'm just pressing one button. Okay. It's pressed. 
apoplexy back then is what is now regarded as a stroke. Uh, so it could be the rupture of an internal organ and symptoms that are to accompany that. December 1891, Julius Smythe and husband Ned Connor moved into Holmes's hotel. Ned began working at the drugstore jewellery counter whilst Julia began an affair with Holmes. He started flirting with her, he, you know, whenever Ned wasn't in the room, he'd be very flirty, flirtatious. He knew they were having some difficulties, he could, the, the walls were very thin. Yes. He could hear them arguing, bickering, and he was um, essentially, uh, he could hear what maybe Ned wasn't, tenderness he wasn't showing, and then he would yeah. then purposely show that. Julia and Ned broke up, Ned moved away. Like we said before, Holmes wouldn't do things without bragging. It wouldn't mm. count as a thing. So he actually revealed to Ned that him and Julia were an item. Yeah. And apparently Ned would go on to say that he said things that only someone that had been revealed would know. Yeah, no other man on earth would be able to tell him the one thing that he told him which is intriguing isn't it but really intriguing yeah i'm guessing well go on birthmark that's probably, probably birthmark i'll yeah. go on birthmark yeah but. birthmark probably birthmark so basically ned would leave and he would leave julia and their daughter pearl behind at the hotel and julia gained custody of their daughter and continued her relationship with holmes december 24th 1891 julia and pearl disappeared Holmes's version of the story is that Julia became pregnant and he attempted an abortion. And although he had a medical background, it is unlikely that Holmes was experienced enough and that mortality rates from an abortion at the time were very, very high. Julia died from the procedure and Holmes disposed of the body. He also claims to have poisoned Julia's daughter Pearl in order to hide the circumstances of her mother's death. There begins to grow a theme here with um, Holmes finding a mistress and then getting them pregnant and not wanting to. Like we said before with, the, with his previous partners, a baby appears and he seems to push them away. But yeah, it's very dark. He, he claimed to her that he, he had the experience and, you know, he would I'm sure he would have spun the yarn about all the things he's done before and stuff like that. But um, yeah, it, it, sadly, it wasn't successful. Or maybe in his eyes, it was successful in terms of what he wanted to do. And this is a very disturbing bit of information. Apparently around this time, Holmes reportedly paid a local man to remove the skin from the corpse of an unusually tall woman. Julia stood at nearly six feet tall and they sold her skeleton to a medical school. And there's no visible clues to the body's identity. Dan, people used to be shorter, didn't they, in the past? Sounds about right. Yeah. Cheers, Dan. It's fine. All right. And another intriguing thing, obviously, when you go, when you go into hotels, you, sometimes you have to leave your credit card there, you know, just in case you go rock and roll and break the room down. So Holmes would get all his employees, hotel guests, to have life insurance policies, essentially. They're all required in order to stay there. Holmes paid the premiums as long as they listed him as the beneficiary. And a lot of his guests and employees would end up disappearing. And obviously, he's the beneficiary yeah. there. People in the neighbourhood eventually reported that they saw many women enter the hotel, but would never see them exit. This is the weird part. So if you're entering a hotel, on the ground floor, he's got a load of shops in there. He's got his pharmacy, these peddling we'll talk about does that bike shop yeah that's good um you might be interested to know that average height in uh, the uh, 17th and 18th century yes hit an all-time low Ooh, great band five foot six is the average height for women so yeah i mean the first floor essentially it was like if you imagine walking into a, a shopping mall it had a load of storefronts it had his pharmacy and he wanted to bring in other investors and other stores to essentially operate out of the ground floor mm. so as you, the only thing i can think of in this situation is that when he's saying you know you're gonna need some life insurance maybe saying that there's still some construction work going on there's still things changing with the building you still would be a bit like well that's my business yeah but then if you want to feel safe i'm i'm gonna pay for the premium for you but you need to name me as the benefactor so you don't i'll name my wife no 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 i'm paying for it she's not paying a penny so yeah, i'd rather have it then i'd rather well no well let's come on 
if you're going to mm. come in, I'll find somewhere else. Well, there's nowhere else, mate. Actually. And then I ended up to be Mr. Woolworths. Bam, bam, bam. Wow, that was a, what a journey. I didn't expect that. Yeah. That's the only thing I can think of. He's offering to pay, obviously. Maybe he's guaranteed, you know, look, just let, sign it to me, but I will pass it on to them. That's also, yeah, highly, highly likely. So 1892, Holmes then added the final and third floor to the building, telling investors and suppliers that he intended to use that floor as a hotel during the upcoming World's Fair. Though the third floor hotel portion was never fully completed, it was rumoured to contain rooms of furniture that Holmes hid away to prevent lenders from repossessing. On one occasion, workers from a local furniture company arrived to repossess its property, only to find the building empty. Like we said before, he signs a lot of names like with the beneficiaries. He used a lot of people, different people's names on on deeds when he was you know, getting people to, to build things or when he was purchasing things. When the payments couldn't be made, he would very much wriggle his way out of things. It wasn't unusual for people to be at his door demanding things, demanding money, but he was a con man, essentially, yeah. wasn't he? And he was able to, to do all that. So yeah, he would very much move things around, hide things away and get away with it. So within the building as well, so he followed a similar tactic here, but he also got a large hidden vault installed in the basement and basically the contractors that he had arranged like it's a big like heavy duty like you'd expect to find it in a really high end bank once they'd installed it built around it a vault is now a large kind of walk-in vault he's then refusing to pay them because it's not quite to the specifications that he wanted when they're then demanding okay well we'll repossess it we'll take it back he's gone go ahead take it back but if you damage any of my building i'm gonna sue you Mm. and it's a fully fitted walk-in vault and they basically judge they can't there's no way of them moving it without them damaging it. Exactly. Property. The other thing was when they with, with the pharmacy itself, they had the vault for for that as well. And when he moved in, and he got one of the people working there to shut themselves in there and scream as loud as they could just to see if it was soundproof. And then he let her out, and they they never asked why he did that. Well, that's a red flag if you're playing the map bingo at home. It sure is. So May 1892, another likely home's mistress. Emmeline Sigrande began working in the building but disappeared in December. Rumours following her disappearance claimed she also became pregnant by Holmes, possibly being a victim of another failed abortion. 1893, Chicago hosted the World's Fair, a cultural and social event to celebrate the 400th anniversary of Columbus's discovery of America. The event was scheduled from May to October and attracted millions of people from all over the world. During this time, Holmes allegedly seduced and murdered a number of women, typically by becoming engaged to them and then killing them after securing control of their life savings. Many out-of-town visitors were reported to have entered the hotel and had never been seen again. This is a big moment when he was trying to expand the hotel and trying to have a lot more rooms to have people in staying there because this was such a big event. And he knew there's gonna be so many people there they could swindle with life insurance and you know possible victims there. But yeah, he, he was just relentless non-stop. There are also claims that at this time Holmes would keep and then sell the bodies of his many victims to local medical schools, but it is likely that he simply dug up the bodies from graves to sell. So although all this is going on, the world's fair, big hotel, big building, he's got his pharmacy to tend to as well. He's also still going to local graves, digging up bodies and performing old tricks. So the final model of the hotel reportedly included two upper levels containing Holmes's office and over 100 rooms that were used as living quarters. Some of these rooms were soundproofed and also contained gas lines, 
Throughout the building, there were trapdoors, peepholes, stairways that led to nowhere. The basement also had a dissecting table, stretching rack, and a crematorium. And yeah, and like we said before, this may have been exaggerated over time. It's been repeatedly told through the ages. I mean, the only evidence that we have is an external photo of the building. There's no internal photos. There are some quite interesting kind of internal graphics of what may have been the case. They're really interesting to to see. Kind of reminds me of the Batcave um, from Batman. The cave. It's a very similar visually. I mean, I'll pop it up. Maybe some people will back me again. Um, Maybe. I'll pop it up now and please back me in the comment section. I'll, that's, be, that's I'll be back to check. So Holmes also in the basement basically had some greased chutes that would line to the basement where he had two extremely large lime pits, which were allegedly used to speed up the decomposition of bodies. So April 1893, Holmes met actress, some say heiress, Minnie Williams in an employment office and offered her a job at this hotel. He began a relationship with her and persuaded her to transfer the deed to her property in Texas to a man named Alexander Bond, an alias of Holmes, with Holmes serving as the notary. The next month, Holmes and Williams presented themselves as husband and wife, rented an apartment in Chicago's Lincoln Park. This is the thing, though. These all, it just sounds so matter-of-fact, all these things that he's doing, but that's a massive thing in itself. In the end? Yeah. Um, so June... He, crawling. He's probably numb to it, though, but... That, that's yeah. Fine. June 1893, Minnie's sister Annie came to visit... And in July, she wrote a letter to her aunt that explained that she would accompany her brother Harry to Europe. Minnie and Annie were never seen again. So you have to think that maybe Holmes penned that letter. Minnie Williams at the time lived at the hotel for more than a year and knew more about Holmes's crimes than any other person, which is quite an interesting note. Minnie was also believed to have instigated the murder of Emily Van Tassel, who was a young lady that lived on nearby Roby Street. She was only 17 and actually worked at a sweet shop in the first floor of the castle. There is no indication of what caused her to catch the eye of Holmes, but she vanished just one month after his offer of employment. So the castle was the name given to the to the building. Many didn't think Holmes was taking the mickey. Um, <laughs> fuck. Wow. Throughout this time, Holmes travelled around the US committing insurance scams with an accomplice called Benjamin Peitzel. Once the World's Fair was over, the Chicago economy was in a slump, so Holmes abandoned the hotel in favour of pursuing the much more lucrative insurance scams. After Peitzel purchased a $10,000 life insurance policy, he and Holmes travelled to Colorado, Missouri, New York, Pennsylvania, Tennessee and Texas, where they committed other acts of fraud such as stealing horses from Texas and shipping them to St. Louis and selling them. It's also been speculated that Holmes also would carry on committing murders during this time. It's never really been specified. It's kind of a bit loose around this this period of time, but it, you know, following his normal behaviour, it wouldn't be wouldn't be uh, unexpected. 1884. So early this particular year, Holmes marries once again, and this time he marries a supposed woman of a tarnished reputation, Georgiana Yoke, in Denver, Colorado. And whilst still married to both Clara and Myrta, Holmes meets Georgiana in a department store. He seduces her through his usual means and entices her to live a bigger, more glamorous life in Chicago. She believes Holmes's uncle had just died in Texas and left him a big property in Fort Worth, though this is actually the property that Minnie Williams's uncle had signed over to her. Not much is known about Georgiana, however she is reported to have fled back to her family. Holmes was eventually arrested for insurance fraud after a fire at his home and jailed, although he was soon released. 
So once Holmes is out of jail, Pikes will move to Philadelphia and open a fake patent office to swindle inventors. Holmes travelled to Philadelphia and attempted the same plan to fake Pitzel's death to receive the life insurance payout. So they're very fixated on this stage of the idea of faking deaths and claiming life insurance policies with the, with the figure $10,000 being bounded around. In September 1894, the original plan was to find a cadaver to play the role of Pitzel, but instead Holmes decided to use the real thing. Holmes, he, he doesn't have any loyalty to any of these people mm-hmm. that he, he, you know, he obviously has been killing his uh, mistresses and, and wives and whatnot, but Holmes went to 1316 Kellow Hill and found Pitzel drunk and passed out, and this is real gaslighting and, and bitchy. Holmes had earlier forged a series of hurtful letters from Pitzel's wife which caused Pitzel to start drinking um, he bound Pitzel's hands and feet and knocked Pitzel unconscious with chloroform and burnt him alive he eventually collected the, the insurance and convinced Pitzel's widow Carrie who had been aware of her husband's involvement in the insurance scheme that her husband was still alive and living in London later giving her $500 of the money he collected Holmes also manipulated Pitzel's widow into allowing three of her children Alice, Nellie and Howard into his custody claiming he had left them with a female cousin whilst the insurance scam was ongoing. He's, this guy. He's, how he's managed to manipulate all these people is, is, is absolutely bizarre. 20th of September, 1894, Alice wrote to her mother several times with one letter reading, Just arrived in Philadelphia this morning. I am going to the morgue after a while. We stopped off at Washington this morning and that made it six times that we transferred to different cars. Mr. H says that I will have a ride on the ocean. I wish you could see what I have seen. I have seen more scenery than I have ever seen since I was born. You had better not write me here, for Mr. H says that I may be off tomorrow. These letters were never sent, and Holmes kept them in a tin box. Holmes would then drag the children from city to city to complete various schemes. So basically, he's manipulating these children as if they were his own, and sometimes took them to the zoo which Alice then would also write to her mother about. After months of scamming, he finally stopped in Canada, where Holmes forced Peitzel's daughters Alice and Nellie into a trunk and gassed them to death by leaking gas from the lamp into the trunk. He then buried their bodies inside the basement of a rental house. A detective named Frank Geyer found the bodies later on and noticed that Nellie's feet were missing. He eventually discovered that Nellie had a club foot and theorised that Holmes had removed it in order to prevent any possible identification of the body, as it was a distinctive body part. Meanwhile, in Indianapolis, Holmes visited a local pharmacy to purchase drugs, which he later used to kill Peitzel's son, Howard. After killing Howard, Holmes mutilated his body and removed his teeth before placing his body inside a chimney. No real MO in terms of who he's killing. Uh, No. Man, woman or child, any age... This is why, to me, like when to go back to the very start of the episode, when I said so much of this seems like myth and urban legend that it couldn't possibly be real. Every part of this timeline is just some ridiculous new twist and mm. turn, escalation. This guy, he he could manipulate anyone. At November 1894, Hedgepath, who was angry that he did not receive any money in the initial scam, told police about the scam Holmes had planned. So the police tracked Holmes, finally catching up to him in Boston, where they arrested him and held him on a standing warrant for attempting to defraud Fidelity Mutual Insurance. At the time of his arrest, Holmes appeared as if he was prepared to flee the country, and police became suspicious of him. Chicago police investigated Holmes' hotel, where they discovered his strange and efficient methods for committing torturous murders. Many of the bodies they located were so badly dismembered and decomposed that it was half them to determine exactly how many bodies were really there. So it just goes to show the absolute carnage that they found. 
20th of November 1894, Carrie Peitzel confesses to attempting to defraud the Fidelity Mutual Insurance by faking her husband's death with the help of H.H. Holmes. She tells them that she fears that Holmes has killed her husband. The police then look further into Holmes's travels, and whilst conducting their investigation in Toronto, police discovered the bodies of the Peitzel children, who had gone missing sometime during Holmes's insurance fraud spree. Linking Holmes to their murders, police immediately arrested him and he was convicted for their murders. 15th of July 1895, the bodies of Peitzel's daughters are found buried in a basement in Toronto. When Carrie Peitzel was called to identify her girls' bodies, all that was left of Nellie was her thick black braid. The rest of her body had decomposed entirely. So 28th of July 1895, police discover two graves in the basement of Holmes's hotel. So the 2nd of August 1895, Patrick Quinlan, who constructed much of Holmes's hotel, opted to give the state evidence against Holmes, as did his wife, who also worked for Holmes. 28th of October 1895, Holmes was tried in Philadelphia for the murder of Peitzel. 2nd of November 1895, the jury deliberated for just two and a half hours before returning a guilty verdict. Holmes is convicted of the murder of Benjamin Peitzel and sentenced to death by hanging. Afterward, the jury reported that they had agreed on the verdict in just one minute, but had remained out longer for the sake of appearances. Holmes confessed to 27 murders. He later increased the total to more than 130, though some researchers have suggested the real number exceeded 200. The 7th of May, 1896, H.H. Holmes is hanged by Moyamensing Prison, also known as the Philadelphia County Prison, nine days before his 36th birthday. A huge crowd showed up for the execution. Spectators had to be driven back by lines of policemen. A certain number of tickets were granted for the execution, but twice that got inside by sheer force. At the gallows, Holmes made a brief statement denying he killed Peitzel, or his children. The executioner's hands trembled, and Holmes was heard saying, Take your time, old man. And apparently when the executioner did let Holmes drop, it didn't actually break his neck. Instead, he died a slow death, his body twitching, and he was pronounced dead 20 minutes later. Mm. Uh, when I said take your time, old man, I did not mean this. I specifically meant when you, before you pull the thing. Just 15 minutes in. It's not what I meant, old man. That is the end of the timeline. Now we're going to look into some aftermath. But before we do that, we're going to throw to our resident doctor, Dr. Das, for some more in-depth insight into H.H. Holmes' psyche. Hello, everybody. My name's Dr. Shaham Das. I'm a consultant, forensic psychiatrist and a YouTuber for the channel Psych for Soul Minds. Here's my psychoanalysis of the Holmes case. So Holmes has often been described as America's first serial killer. But what I think is interesting is that he's quite unusual for a serial killer because usually they have this, this psychological urge. Either it can be a sexual desire or like a compulsion for bloodlust. But I think in Holmes' case, most of his killings had like a practical motive. There was a purpose. So he either got rid of somebody that knew too much or somebody that was getting in his way or he believed couldn't be trusted. So it seems that his murders were for protecting and upkeeping his lifestyle. So what I'm getting at is that I view him more as a con artist who murdered rather than a serial killer who committed, you know, cons. And also we have to remember that this was all happening in the late 1800s. And obviously around that time, there was limited abilities for the police to detect these kind of criminals. There was less record keeping, etc. Another thing that really strikes me about the Holmes case is his astounding lack of empathy or shame. So he's even killed his own friends. He killed his co-defendant, Peitzel. He killed Peitzel's children. He killed 
ex-schoolmates, lovers who became inconvenience. You've got to wonder if he had any kind of connection or if he was able to love anybody or if he could even feel love. Now, I think you could argue that most serial killers have a lack of empathy for their victims. I think that's true. I think most serial killers will struggle on one level with their morality. Not this dude. He didn't care about killing people even if they were close to him. And then, of course, there's the murder castle, which was equipped with, as we know, secret passages, trapdoors, gas jets, a kiln to cremate the bodies. So to me, that all demonstrates like this level of organisation and intention. This wasn't just impulsive. So Holmes confessed to 27 murders, although apparently some of the people that he claimed to have killed were actually still alive. And he was paid a large sum of money from the newspapers in exchange for his confession even though some of it was found out to be untrue, to be nonsense. So that begs the question, why was he doing that? What was his motivation for lying? And for me, it was all about sensationalization. So it was just another con. It was just another way to make money. But I think on top of that, there could have been some confusion because some people estimate that he killed around 200 people. So with those kind of figures, it's not surprising that he might be confused about some of the details. Another thing that really strikes me about Holmes was his behaviour around the time of his death. And apparently, even up until the moment of his death, he remained calm, stable, and he showed very few signs of fear. And I think that's relevant, and I'll come back to why. Despite that, Holmes asked for his coffin to be like contained in cement and buried 10 feet deep, apparently because he was worried about grave robbers. And I think we'd all agree that's, that's quite a bizarre and specific kind of request, which indicates that he's a bit paranoid. And I think his paranoia is understandable. I think it developed naturally over time because of his circumstances, as opposed to, for example, because of like psychosis or mental illness. He had enough scams and he buried enough bodies and there was enough skeletons in his closet that he must have been paranoid about something unravelling and him being found out and revealed, which obviously did happen eventually. When it comes to serial killers, the term psychopath is often overused, I think, and there's a misconception where people just assume that psychopathy is related to ununderstandable violence. But I think Holmes actually is a classic psychopath. So as well as the basics, you know, lack of empathy, acting impulsively, not caring about the rights and wrongs of other people, uh, having no qualms about breaking the laws, he clearly had all of those things. But what really stands out to me is he was highly manipulative. So he managed to convince multiple partners to sign over their life insurance. He convinced multiple co-defendants to join him in his cons. And he had this string of accomplices, which some of whom he ended up killing. So that really shows how charming and persuasive he must have been. On top of all of that, he had some of the soft, what I would call the softer kind of associations of psychopathy. So we know he was sexually promiscuous. We know he was charming. Plus we know he was quite criminally versatile. So, you know, forget about the murders, just the grave robbing, the fraud, all of those things, plus his lack of fear. So that's something that really differentiates a psychopath from, from an average person, is that they can't feel, or they can't internalize fear. And that was shown by his calm demeanor, even when he was about to be hanged. But for me, the biggest telltale sign is something that I mentioned before, is just his ability to end the lives of people that he was supposed to be his friends and his lovers and partners so heartlessly. So that in a nutshell is my psychoanalysis of Holmes. If you're interested in that kind of thing, you've got to go and check out my YouTube channel, A Psych for Sore Minds. It's like a crossover between true crime and mental illness. Got a, a range of videos and loads of different things. Recently, I've discussed the psychology behind domestic violence, the psychology behind stalking. So go and check it out. Right, that's enough for me. Back to Ben and Tom.
So thank you very much to Dr. Das. And if you haven't already, why not subscribe to his channel, A Psych for Sore Minds, on YouTube? We'll pop the link in the description below. It's got a wide selection of other videos available. So why not click over and have a little browse? Yes, indeedy. So one thing before we jump into the aftermath. Ooh. A lot of the documentaries we watch, podcasts we listen to, they all start with the quote. Oh, We're going to plonk it in the middle of the episode, kind of without any kind of organisation or thought. You can do it in an accent. I was born with a devil in me. I could not help the fact that I was a murderer. No more than a poet can help the inspiration to sing. I was born with the evil one standing as my sponsor beside the bed where I was ushered into the world. And he has been with me since. Basically saying, I'm a naughty boy. <laughs> and I was always going to do this. So don't go hold it against me too much. <laughs> Spot on. That's yeah. yeah. That's the modern day. Yeah, yeah. H.H. Yeah. Holmes. Though the, the language, though, they just sound a lot cooler, doesn't it? Ball the devil and something. Mm. So we're going to look in a little bit at the aftermath now, just go through some things that happened afterwards and other things that, you know, influenced Holmes as well. So when Holmes's confession was printed in the paper, it took up more than four full pages of the newspaper. And this included illustrations of the house on Cowboy Street. So this is very ironic. A man who spent a lot of his spare time digging up bodies and selling them. Uh, Holmes was very fearful of grave robbers and he had explicit extra instructions for his burial and a man did actually offer a large sum of money for his body afterwards it basically he was buried in a grave 10 feet deep and eight feet long and people were shorter back then as well so that's really deep in the coffin um holmes's face was covered with a cloth and cement was poured over every part of his body 13 men dragged the coffin to the grave the weight of the coffin was so great it fell into the grave upside down and instead of facing the heavens he faced hell mm -hmm. which is quite that apt one, yeah just before his execution, Holmes was visited by two Catholic priests in his cell and he even took communion with them, although he refused to ask forgiveness for his crimes. Probably just wanted the wine. Yeah, I could see that. And a moan. So the castle uh, was remodeled as an attraction named the Holmes Horror Castle. However, it burned to the ground shortly before its opening after witnesses reportedly saw two men enter the building late one night. The idea that that, that existed, though, and that there were trapdoors and stairways leading to nowhere, and I think at one point there was a maze and a hanging chamber, soundproof rooms, that itself is... I still don't know what to believe exactly. Because mm. what can be evidence... What can be proven? As well, because there's, there's like little gaps and like trapdoors and little like gaps between rooms. Some people believe that so he could he could watch people and like yeah. view people, but some people working there apparently would use them just sleeping and just kind of hide away. They knew about them. They weren't bothered about them. They just kind of you know cozy. He's a weird guy. I'm sure you know, I'm a bit I'm a nap in there. But it's, it's so bizarre when you're going to mix it all together. Like most things, there's conspiracy theories that go along with this. I'll go through some of them quickly now. Jack the Ripper, Jeff Mudgett, a lawyer and former commander in the U.S. Naval Reserve claims that his great-great-grandfather H.H. Holmes was in fact Jack the Ripper. Mudgett bases his assertions on the writings in two diaries that he inherited from Holmes, which details Holmes' participation in the murder and mutilation of numerous prostitutes in London. But a handwriting expert dismissed this, any possibility of this, saying that the handwriting did not match the Ripper's handwriting. Yeah, well, we'll pop the photos up. There are some similarities, but again, if you're the great-great-great-grandson... It's a weird thing to put forward about your own family. Well, again, he was common as well in terms of home, so maybe he changed his handwriting quite easily. Maybe he wanted to make a quick buck from his great-great-granddad as well. Mudgett also claims that the man that died in the public hanging that took place on May the 7th, 1896, was in fact not H.H. H. Holmes, but rather a man that Holmes tricked into going into the gallows in his place. Might not have even been the 
the true authentic H.H. Holmes that was hanged or hung. Apparently in the execution, one story claimed that a lightning bolt had ripped through the sky at the precise moment the rope had snapped his neck. But it didn't snap his neck. We know that he was left writhing in pain for 20 minutes, but it's quite a dramatic scene that they're painting there. Then there's also a thing called the Holmes Curse, which basically is essentially people involved around the case, prosecuting him, would go on to later um, suffer sudden deaths, which blood poisoning and and a sudden stroke and heart attack. I think three or four people around the case would go on to, to pass very shortly afterwards. It's kind of like the exorcist curse that people say. It's just people mm. just die. The last one is quite an interesting one, Ben. Yeah, slightly more modern. So Meghan Markle is apparently a distant relation to H.H. H. Holmes. M.M. Windsor. According to Meet the Markles, a new television documentary series produced by Channel 4, the former suit star Meghan Markle is a distant relation to H.H. H. Holmes. America's first serial killer. All right, Ben, it is that time where we both make a mockery of ourselves and say look alike. Mm. How have you done for this one? Shockingly. I feel confident this one. I think you're going to get it. Shall I go first? Oh, you can, yeah. Well, I mean, my one's going to annoy you, first of all. I'll just give you that warning in advance. That's fine. I'm going with Daniel Day-Lewis from There Will Be Blood. Very, very, very good shout. I can already tell. Yeah. Uh, usually it's him with the cowboy hat, but even just those ones, it looks quite... He would play him very well. Yeah, that one there. Yeah, I, yeah, I can't really compete with that. I mean, I, I asked Go on, for... annoy me. I, I, well, I'll give you the, the easy one. I thought it would be too obvious to go with Charles Bronson because that was very obvious. So I reached out to my family group chat, said, look, guys, really need some lookalikes for this, but please, no Charles Bronson. So I sent that message to the chat. My mum instantly replied, bless her. Tom Hardy from that prison movie. Which is Charles Bronson. Which is Bronson. Now, the one I'm going to annoy you with, Tom, is not really a lookalike. Okay. It's more of a concept. <laughs> it's just wearing the same clothes. I feel like H.H. Now, stick with me, boys. I'm going to scroll down. Go on. I feel like H.H. Holmes and Albert Fish could easily be brothers. Or like stepbrothers that don't really get along. So my concept is if you put them side by side, same hat, same moustache. Not really a lot going on similarly facially. But I feel like they would make a great back and forth between the two of them. Maybe like a Laurel and a Hardy. Chuckle Brothers. Chuckle Brothers the is darkest, a great show. The darkest Chuckle Brothers. Yeah. The one movie I really thought it was like, but I can't think of the movie, is basically there's a, a mouse and two brothers trying to sell a house, but the mouse is in the house. Mousetrap? Could be Mousetrap, yeah. Could very well be Mousetrap. Is Lee Evans? Yes, Lee Evans is in it. Yeah. And a guy that looks like Hardy. Could see them also, the pair of them, in wacky races together. You kind of verged away from the, the lookalike he's there. Yeah, with. just concept, as I said. Yeah, yeah. It's going to annoy you, as I said. It's not so. annoying me, it's just... Yeah. But, yeah, I think I would... Albert Fish, the Fish and Holmes gang. So, guys, we hope you enjoyed the case of H.H. H. Holmes, the devil inside the man. A lot to take in there. Mm. A lot to take in. And he took a lot inside his hotels. Very Mudge much, it. yeah. Twist it, pop it, <laughs> pass it, flick it. Um, Mudge it. <laughs> I said that at the beginning of it. I didn't hear that part. Sorry. An episode that we have wanted to cover for quite some time. So, as always, no, we really appreciate all the lovely feedback, all of the kind comments. If you haven't already, click that subscribe button. If you don't follow us already on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, the, all the lovely communities out there, why not consider following? That's how to best stay in the loop of all the things that we do. And uh, yeah, you're not going to want to miss next week's big, big episode. No, and also don't forget to give us a, a rating and uh, on our on the audios as well because it does really help us. iTunes, Spotify, wherever you listen to us, a little rating on there would be very much appreciated. It does help more than you'll ever know. 
And if, you know, you want more content, we have a Patreon. It costs roughly about a quid a week. There's 57, 50, well, at this stage, probably 60 minisodes on there. Probably 60, yeah. And a lot of um, new series strands are doing in there as well. So go over there. You, you can nominate different cases on there and it'll do polls. It's very interactive. So be sure to head over there. It's a lot of fun. And if you would like something a little bit more physical, why not head over to icmap.store, which is our merch store. We've got, we're fully stocked at the moment, guys and girls. We have got hats, we have got totes, we have got jumpers, sweaters, t-shirts. T-shirts. Badges. 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 Oh, badges. Candles, sticker packs, and, and bundles, bundle packages. But all that. All the lot. Posters. Posters, there you go. Posters. We got there in the end. We We're got fully stocked, I promise. Yeah, if anything, too much stock. So if you could try and help us out a bit, because it's a bit cramped. Yeah. A bit cramped in the stock room. <laughs> and just by becoming a Patreon backer, you unlock an exclusive discount to the store. So well, Ben, birds. that sounds really good. Maybe I should sign up to it and get discount off from the store. Why not? Okay. And of course, a big shout out to Gully Gums once again. And go over there and use our, our discount code MURDER20. 20% off those garms are gully and they will get you and uh, we re- regularly look over there and we're like oh I'm going to need some more of those or those clothes yeah 100% guys and girls all things gully gullygarms.com yes indeed and guys like we always say we say this all of the time keep doing what you're doing wow unless it's elaborate corridors and staircases leave the cadavers be Trapdoors. Leave the cadavers be. Lime pits. Mm. Vaults that you're not you're not taking that vault back. Alright guys. Until next time. Two pip. See ya. Take easy. Take it easy. Two pip. Bye. See ya. Hello and welcome to I Can Murder a Podcast, episode number seven of series five. I'm Tom Norris and I'm joined by once again is Ben Carter. Hello, hello, hello. It's good to be back. It's good to be sat at a slightly different angle today with you. A pleasure, in fact, at that. Hello, I'm Ben. You have been listening to I Could Murder a Podcast, written and presented by Tom Norris and Ben Carter, produced and mixed by Dan Lambert at Boston Sound. Additional research and timelines written by Danielle St. Romain. Additional voiceover by Adam Kordecki. Artwork and animation by Phil Wooten. And theme song by Alfie Indra. If you've enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe on YouTube and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Just search at Pod. For additional and exclusive content, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash could murder a pod I could murder a podcast is proudly part of the ACAST creator network for hundreds of extra minisodes and other content along with our private discord server and live Q&A's exclusive merch and much more consider subscribing to icmap.co.uk